Well, don't forget about Friday, of course, as we have our opening uh, program. I'm sure it was mentioned once, but let me just remind you one more time. Again, Friday night, 7 o'clock, we'll be right here as we uh, look forward to our program. And so be inviting someone to come out with you. Make it an evening and make it a nice evening. And who knows, maybe you can go to dinner before and show up here or go to dinner after or whatever it might be. But get some folks here and we'll do our best to uh, certainly do a good job for the glory of Christ. And then, uh, of course, provide a uh, basically a very short message, but a message nonetheless to uh, in just encourage people to receive and accept the Lord if they have yet to have done so. And so uh, we want to make it profitable for them as well as each and every one of you. So plan on being here 7 o'clock Friday evening. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 13. And of course, last week we began our study and uh, we're going to go ahead and continue this message. And again, the message will probably last anywhere from three, four, maybe five weeks. It's... uh, it's one message, but I'm, I decided to kind of kind of make it a little bit more, uh, I guess, include a little bit more in each area. I think it's so important, the topic that we started. And again, I, I just kind of keep expanding it. So I don't know that it's going to end anytime real soon, but I like it. It's entitled, Some Ways Satan Will Try and Take Advantage of You. Some Ways Satan Will Try and Take Advantage of You. And it's just something that uh, I think it's a tremendous uh, need that we have today. We need to be very aware of how he operates and functions. And so we're uh, learning and we're seeking to grow in that area. So Second Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> the Bible says, But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. Furthermore, when I came to Troas, uh, Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Again, we want to draw our attention to verse 11. We said, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. We noted that in competition, it's always the goal, the desire of those that are competing to get the advantage. And so we we talked about that a little bit. We began to lay that groundwork. We did say that we are in a battle. Without a doubt, we are in a battle. 
I don't know that you have to be in the Christian life all too long to realize that you're not alone in it. Yes, you have some friends, and yes, you have uh, leaders that are there to help and encourage you and to move you forward, but it is also evident in our daily uh, life that there are some enemies around. There are those that are seeking to discourage us and ultimately even devour us and destroy us. And so we note that we are in a battle. But also we said that we have the advantage. Again, it's, it's easy to somehow get the idea that we're the ones that are at a disadvantage. I mean, we don't have the numbers, and so the enemy seems to outnumber us many-fold. But the reality is, and I don't have my mic on, do I? The reality is, is that we are the ones that really do have the advantage. Again, we, we possess some uh, things that are very important. First of all, in 1 John 4, 4, we said, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Bible tells us that we have overcome them. And we have someone in us greater than those outside of us. We have Jesus Christ living in us. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Our victory or the, the means by which we conquer is not ourselves or our, our plans or even our own ideas. It's simply Christ himself. He's the one who offers us and enables us to experience great victory. Again, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven says, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we, all, we already have the advantage. Whether you think you do or whether you've been told you do or not, doesn't matter. You do. And the fact is, is we live in a day and age where even in churches, we're kind of given the idea that somehow we're at a disadvantage. I mean, people are just so hard today. They don't want to hear the gospel. Nobody really wants to know what we have to say, and you're just wasting your time knocking on doors. You're wasting your time running those buses. You're wasting your time pouring money into evangelism and outreach. But let me tell you something. We have the advantage. But because we have the advantage, we noted that the devil does everything he possibly can to take advantage of us or to get the advantage from us. Again, it's interesting to note that every time you get on top side, it seems that something or someone's trying to drag you down. It seems like every time that a victory comes in your life or your ministry or your home or your family, it seems like the devil's there to somehow try to trip you up one more time. He never leaves you alone. Why is he trying to do that? Because he wants the advantage. He doesn't have the advantage. He wants it, though. And so we noted some ways that the devil seeks to get an advantage over us. We got through one. That's why I say this message might last a little longer than I thought originally. But here's what we said. We said that he will use times of sorrow and bereavement to get an advantage. He'll use times of sorrow and bereavement to get an advantage. Now tonight we want to continue. And I want to begin to look at this side of it. How will the devil get an advantage of us or take advantage of us? He will use the tool of affliction to gain advantage affliction he will use the tool of affliction to get advantage or to gain it so let's take just a moment we'll have a word of prayer and we'll continue father again we thank you for the privilege it is just to be a part of your family and to gather here under the roof or the uh, under this this uh, roof that we can father be i guess exhorted we can be taught and father we can be encouraged 
Father, what a blessing that is to be able to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ tonight. Lord, the world's not an easy place at times to get along. We're grateful that we have you living in us, that we are more than conquerors. We don't have to take a back seat to anyone or anything because, Lord, we are already victors. Lord, we realize and recognize that we're outnumbered. But then again, wherever you are, God, makes it a majority. So, Lord, we're grateful for your presence. Oh, Holy Spirit of God, I pray that, Father, you'd fill me with your spirit tonight. Lord, may I not stand here in my flesh. But, Lord, may you, Father, literally fill me. You stand in my shoes and allow me to be your mouthpiece tonight. Lord, may you be with your people. Lord, may you just clear their minds from the busyness of this day and help them to relax in your arms. May you, Father, feed us tonight. Feed us from your table. And Father, we are desperately needy. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We ask for your grace even now. In Christ's name, amen. So what we notice here is that he'll try to gain an advantage of us through affliction, by using affliction. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, you may know the verse by heart. And if you don't, you've probably heard it a number of times if you're here tonight on a Wednesday evening. But the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Be sober, be vigilant. What he's saying is be awake, be alert, be prepared. Why? Because the devil, the adversary, is walking about for the express purpose of devouring us, wrecking us, ruining us. There's nothing about you that the devil likes. There's nothing about me that he likes. He hates your guts and he hates mine. He despises every last one of us because of who and what we stand for. He hates our master and therefore he hates us. He does not want to bring you any real pleasure or lasting hope. He simply wants to use you up and throw you away. The devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You know, when you're saved, when you come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are saved forever. Aren't you glad for that wonderful doctrine of eternal life? You know, we often in the past, you know, I've even uh, obviously written some discipleship booklets and things, and I've put eternal security. But let me tell you, I stopped using the word eternal security because it's not really biblical. Everlasting life. Isn't it a wonderful thing to have eternal or everlasting life? It is a life that begins and never ends, so to speak. And in a sense, uh, from the moment you were conceived, from that day forward, you were an eternal being or creature. But then when you received and accepted Christ, you ceased from being dead forever (laughs) to being alive forever. Jesus said, he said that I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So now I live today because I'm in Jesus Christ. I've put my faith in the Lord. However, even though I have that eternal life, and because I have that eternal life, Satan is going to seek to hinder me after I've been saved. He can do nothing to gain my soul. He can do nothing to have me back under his authority. No, the only thing that he can do is try to wreck me and ruin me, and he'll try to do the same to you. 
Again, he knows he can't take you to hell with him. But he can try to ruin your testimony and destroy your future for the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, these are such wonderful passages, but it says, Blessed be God, the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy have begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept, I like that part, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What a wonderful promise we have. That our God will not forsake us. He'll never leave us. We are saved forever. But again, if Satan can't have us, he will try to ruin us for God. You can bet on that. Again, his only alternative is to hinder the work of God in our lives. And in the lives of those that we could have influenced and encouraged on his behalf. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The moment you trusted Christ, God began a good work. He began a work in your life. And it isn't just any normal or uh, uh, work. It is a good work. And the truth is, is that the devil wants to trip you up. So that God cannot fulfill His purpose in your life. Well, we need to be so careful. Again, He wants to do a good work. And that work is... That's driving me nuts. I don't know if it's because I dropped this thing or... It's getting ready to do something crazy. I can just feel it. It's going to go... Remember how a few times it's just going... Remember how it's done that through the whole auditorium? And woke some of you up. Remember how startled you were? <clears throat> I do have that effect. Everyone tells me, why my children sleep so well there in that auditorium? I say, I know. It's, the only problem is dads are doing a good job of it, too. <clears throat> All right, maybe we can get that going. There we go. I think it's a little better. We'll see. <clears throat> but uh, it's terrible tonight. That's better. All right, good. Thank you, brother. We just shut off the monitors, didn't we? Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay. Boy, I tell you what. The Lord knows what he's doing. We didn't need those monitors anyway tonight. We'll need them Friday night. So when a person gets saved, God begins that good work in their life. And again, that work is continued throughout your lifetime. It will forever be something God is working on. You become his project. And he works on you. Now, Satan's going to hinder that work that God's trying to perform in your life. And every child of God that is born again has a purpose. And Satan is going to try and distract and even discourage you from that divine purpose. You need to realize that. Now, we speak of purpose. There's no greater purpose than that of sharing the message of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no greater purpose than sharing His marvelous mercy and grace with others who are in need of Him. That is the main or that is the most important purpose, if you will, or the most, is the greatest reason why God left you here and left me here. Now, I know we often get that mixed up, but that is God's intent for every one of His children. It's His intent that we become a witness on His behalf, that we seek to gain others into the kingdom, that we try to reach others for the purpose of helping them find eternal or everlasting life. 
So whatever your official job description may be, making or sharing the gospel with the mission of your life is your purpose. So then God didn't leave you here to make money to support your family. That's not why he left you here. I say, oh, that's my responsibility. It might be a responsibility of yours, but it's not your purpose. God left you here to reach others with the gospel. He left you here with the purpose of fulfilling His work. He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Your actual occupation, your occupation may vary, but your passion ought to be the same as Jesus Christ, and that is to deliver the gospel. And that ought to be my passion. Sadly enough, if there's any reason... I guess why the church seems to be dwindling and why it seems that across America we don't have the influence we used to have as Bible believers is because the people of God have failed to recognize their real, genuine purpose for existing. We've lost sight of it. We somehow think that if we come to church three times a week and we pay our tithes and offerings, we sing in the choir, we teach Sunday school, we ride a bus, we play a piano, we clean the church, we help in the nursery, we help to usher and take care of those and shake hands and smile as people arrive every week, then somehow we fulfilled our God-given purpose. Let me tell you something, that's a very small part of your purpose. The reality is that your purpose and my purpose is to share Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel with a world that's lost and dying and going to hell. That's why God left us here. And if we are not fulfilling that in our lives, then we are not fulfilling God-given purpose. That's just the reality. You know, we take people through discipleship, and if all they learn is the basics, all they learn is about salvation and about baptism, and they learn about, about giving, and they learn about all the different aspects and the different concepts and perspectives of the church, we have failed them. Because in the end, God left us here to propagate the gospel, to share the truth, to give Jesus to others like we were given Jesus. When he says we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them, I contend with you tonight that the most pressing purpose that God left us for, and the greatest work that we remain on earth for is the reaching souls of souls. Now the devil is going to try to trip you up in any way he can. He doesn't want you to fulfill God-given purpose. He doesn't want you to have a reason to get up in the morning. He doesn't want you to feel like, like, like there's a reason to exist. No, he wants you to be discouraged downtrodden. He wants you to ultimately be totally disgusted with your life, yourself, and everything else. He is going to do all he can to get the advantage over you. Because see, within you lives the God, the Creator, the Holy One of Heaven. You have the greatest power source available in all the universe. There is no power source 
outside of that one power source. The only other power that mankind possesses is God-given. Even if he's lost every ounce of energy that he possesses, every breath that was within the context of his lungs is all a direct result of the grace of that one power source, and that's God himself, Jesus Christ. He has nothing without Jesus Christ. You have nothing without Jesus Christ. And I have nothing without Jesus Christ. There is no God beside him. And therefore, the devil wants to continually try to divert your attention from the only God that there is and put it on him and his agenda. Be so careful. Be very careful. Now, you and I can rise above all that the devil puts in our pathway. Everything that he puts before us, we can rise above. We do not have to be held captive. We don't have to be tripped up. In Psalm chapter 25, verse 17, we read, The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Oh, bring thou me out of my distresses, the psalmist says. In 25, 18, he says, Look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. In Psalm 25, 19, he says, Consider mine enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. The psalmist knew a little bit about affliction. Let me tell you, the devil knows a lot about affliction, and he is good at administering affliction in your life and in mine, all in an attempt to gain an advantage over you. Why? Because he knows you already have the advantage. Any affliction, and this is important to understand, any affliction in your life or mine has been allowed by God. There, there's, there's no way to get around it. You know this whole thing about, well, it's all the devil's fault. We understand that the devil causes a great amount of affliction in the sense that he, he wreaks havoc in our world and in our lives, our families. I understand that. But in a believer's life, God permits the devil to do it. We, we, we cannot dismiss this reality. See, we're so afraid to say the truth because we're afraid people will become bitter against the God who saved their soul from hell, who gave them everything that's worth living for. Somehow we don't believe that the Holy Spirit of God living in them is big enough to express to them that he is worth living for even when it doesn't seem that the world or that, 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 that good is going on in our lives. We, we trust God tonight. And if we don't, we ought to. Any affliction that's been allowed has been allowed by God. He's not the one that administers the pain. He, the devil's doing it, but he permits it. See, there's not one thing in your life that has entered into it that has taken God by surprise. I, it, you know, how horrific it is. It is horrific to receive news on the other end of a telephone that you have cancer. That is a horrific, horrific diagnosis or piece of information shared with you. That did not take God by surprise. It's horrible. And unless you've been on that side of the phone, you cannot understand what people go through. You can try to pretend you do, but you don't. Before we get all high and mighty and start telling everybody why they need to just trust God, why don't just wait till we get the call, and then we'll see how we do. 
All I'm saying is you ought to love people, show them some compassion, and be patient with people. I think of a man by the name of Job in the Bible. You talk about affliction. In Job chapter 1, verse 8, interestingly enough, the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Now, if you, I don't know about you, but that sure seems like the Lord just basically said, Okay, here, I'll tell you what, I don't want to use my Bible, but here's Job. Devil, you ever think about that one? You ever consider him? You say everybody serves me simply because of what I give them? You ever think about that boy right there? He's the real deal. I'll trust him with anything you can throw at him. You say, no, God wouldn't do that to us. That's a, that's a horrible guy. That's a mean. Wait a second. Remember, he's God, though. We're not. We're created for his pleasure, not the other way around. Now, hold on a second, though. Don't give up on God yet. And that's what we're afraid of, aren't we? We're so afraid to tell the truth because we're afraid everybody's going to give up on God. Well, let me tell you something. When you give up on God, you give up on yourself. Because you got nothing without him, and neither do I. He said, there he is. Go ahead. You want him? The devil says, hmm, yeah, that, that sounds good. I'll prove to you, God, that nobody... I'll prove to you that there are people that serve you, of course, but they serve you for one reason, and one reason only, that's because of what you give them. After he throws a few rocks at Job, he turns around in Job 2.3, the Lord turns around and says, Hey, uh, Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? That there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity? Although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Movest me against him? What's he saying? You moved me against my own servant. I gave him to you. I allowed you to do what you did to him. But even so, he still, he still will not curse me. Even so, he maintains or holds fast, holds fast his integrity. Now, what a testimony. So he puts him right back out there again. Says, okay, here he is. Go after it again. The only thing I'm going to tell you, don't take his life. Of course, we're well aware that Job lost his family, his fortune, and his perceived future. And he had any hope, I'm sure. There came a point, even in Job's life, where he probably thought, man, what is going on here? i got to believe that he was just a man. His life had changed overnight, literally. Wouldn't be long before his health would suffer. And there, upon a heap of ashes, he would sit scraping the boils off his skin with shreds of broken pottery. Scraping those boils, pussing, running down in blood, running down his arms and his back, his shoulders, his neck, his lower extremities. But hold on, before we go any further, may we not forget that Job's wife lost her children and her possessions also. You know, we forget about Mrs. Job, don't we? You know, she was no longer surrounded with the elements of her life that offered security and stability. Listen, all you need to do is go to any marriage seminar and you'll, of course, learn that women are motivated by security. 
that they want to feel secure. That's why God made men to go provide and to be there and protect. Because a woman needs security. Mrs. Job was lacking a lot of security, seeing that all her possessions had vanished away and her own children, all ten of them, were no longer living. Instead of security and stability before her eyes lay the fruit of a lifetime, destroyed and desolate. As Job's wife buried each of her ten children, as she foraged through the debris, hoping to find reminders of days filled with love and laughter, as she recognized that her lifestyle was drastically different than it was just days before, her heart became increasingly bitter and angry toward God. See, the devil had sought to turn the advantage in his favor. Don't you get it? She had the advantage. But he attacked as a roaring lion, and then he subtly sowed lies in the heart of his victim. See, I wasn't there that day, and neither were you, but I can only imagine that his attack consisted of questioning God's love, maybe his promises, or even his overall goodness. Earlier in our study last week, we... We noted that the devil's a liar. Don't you like? I mean, God mixes no words. He says, you're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. There's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Never forget that the devil is a liar. Anytime... A lie raises its ugly head in your life, your marriage, your home, your church, anywhere it is. You can rest assured the devil has shown up. Oh, but he's a nice guy, really. No, he's let the devil take control of his tongue. No, but you don't understand. My husband's really a good man. He might be a good man in many areas, but all of a sudden, somehow, some way, the devil got a hold of him, got the advantage, and he used him as his mouthpiece. <clears throat> Again, during the death of a loved one, we noted that the devil will sow his lies in the gardens of our mind. We said he would say things like, God doesn't love you. He'd not have allowed this to happen otherwise. Or it's your fault that, that they're dead. Or maybe you could have stopped this tragedy from happening. Or maybe even you're being punished for your sins. See, it appears to me that Satan finally gets to Mrs. Job because ultimately now or she, begins, she confronts her husband. A husband who has yet to accuse God, who, who has yet to utter any real disdain with our Lord. And let me say this, the words that are going to now come out of Mrs. Job's mouth are uncharacteristic. I don't believe you'd have heard her say this just a month ago. I don't think she'd have even, even formed the thought, let alone the words. But all of a sudden now, Mrs. Job is going to make a statement out of frustration out of sorrow, out of the affliction, out of the gross hurt in her heart. 
Because the devil had gotten an advantage through this affliction. If you play any tennis at all, you're going to note that once you arrive at what's called deuce, 40-40, it goes 15-30-40. Once you both get to 40, it's called deuce. After that, they use an interesting term. The next ball is served, and the one who wins that volley is said to have advantage. Because if they then win the next volley, they will go on to win the game. Not the, the, not, not the, 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 the um, match, set, that right, set, game, set, match. But anyway, not the, that, whatever you just said. But uh, they're going to win that game. But there's a, a term there, advantage. So like you may, is it Federer's playing, they'll say, advantage Federer. That means that he has the advantage. If he only wins one more point, he wins. Let me tell you something. Advantage Satan right now. Advantage Satan in Mrs. Job's life. And listen, I'm not going to point a finger at Mrs. Job and say, you're such a wicked person. You've given the devil the advantage. No, I've not lost ten sons. I've not buried all my children. I've not been afflicted even remotely the way that she had. I've lost all my possessions. I still have a car that I get a chance to drive around town. And i still got a house in order to go and lay my head and rest tonight. I've even got a big screen TV. And I like it. She didn't have that. So I'll withhold my judgment. And all I'll say is, beware, Mrs. Job. Satan has advantage. In Job chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, the Bible says, And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. And I don't believe Job got bent out of shape. I don't think he got to screaming and hollering. I think he was hurting a little bit too much to jump off the pile and rant and rave. And I think he just was in his heart. He understood the hurt of his wife. And by the way, men, you better understand the hurt of your wives. If nobody understands her, you better. Because that's what God said you're supposed to do. And Job said, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? Well, if we could grab hold of that. Oh, man. It would change our perspective. It would change our life. In all this did not Job sin with his lips. It is very critical at this point that Mrs. Job take the time to regroup and regain the proper perspective in the midst of this major affliction. So imperative. Again, let's not be too hasty to indict her, however. Not only has she lost her children, her security, and the very life that she knew, but now her most precious 
possession, her husband, her provider, her protector, lie wounded and suffering before her very eyes. It's bad enough when you've lost everything, but you have each other. Now she sees her husband sitting on a pile of ashes, fearful that his very life is endangered and that her entire future is lost. Boy, it's easy to cast stones at people when you're on the other side. As a matter of fact, Job's friends had a tendency to do the same. But see, all I want you to understand through all of this is that the devil will use affliction to gain an advantage over you. See, the devil is not at liberty to cause affliction without God's consent. That's number one, we know that. Number two, the only way the devil can touch you is if the Lord permits it. So the question arises, why does God allow these things to happen? Why does he permit affliction then? I mean, if he just knows simply that, if he could withhold it, first of all, why does he allow it? And secondly, if he, if, 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 if he knows it's going to possibly or potentially give Satan an advantage, why, why does he permit it? Well, by the end of the book, the book of Job, that is, we're provided some insight that seems to unlock the secrets of suffering in many cases. Turn, if you would, to Job chapter 42, verse 1. Almost done. We really are. Job chapter 42. Don't get too excited. We're not that close. Saw some of the ladies putting their shoes back on. Nope. Notice Job chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me. Now listen to that. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. You ever listen to a young person talk? And while they're talking, you're going, okay. When you grow up, you'll understand. Have you ever done that? You know, or you get that new convert, you know? And I'm not, I'm not trying to diss any new converts here. But, but the new convert that says, well, obviously God's not blah, 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 because I just saw this and blah, 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 blah. There's some things that aren't right. And you're thinking, be patient with them. They'll understand by and by. They'll figure it out along the way. Train them, teach them, love them. Don't discourage them. Help them to dig in the right places to get the right answers. But you're listening to them and you're going, you don't even have a clue. I've had people suggest things to me about programs or situations and say, I think we ought to do this. And I'll say, well, 
well, that seems like a, an idea that might have some merit, but I'm a little concerned. I think there might be a few. Well, I just think it'll work. I don't understand why you won't ever use anybody's ideas. Have they ever thought that maybe we've done that once, twice, three, maybe five times, and found that it has never worked for us? Does anybody have, did you ever even, did they even slow down long enough to think that just maybe somebody came up with that idea before they did? Now again, I'm not trying to be mean and nasty, I'm just trying to be honest. That's what Job's saying to God. Job's going, you know what, I feel like a foolish kid. I was running my chops, I'm telling you how to run the universe, and I didn't even have a clue. You know he learned that? Through affliction? He didn't know that before. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now, this is so good, mine eye seeth thee. Oh, man. You get it? You know what he just said? You will never see God without affliction. You just won't see him the way you need to see him unless he allows you to go through some difficult times in your life. You ever watch these gray-haired saints running around with all the smiles on their faces and life seems to be falling apart around everything and, and they're just sitting there, praise the Lord, God bless you, amen. And you're thinking, either they're the biggest phony I've ever met in my life or they know something I don't. Well, they know something we don't most of the time. They've been through affliction. They've been through sorrow and bereavement. They've been through hard times and they know a Savior in a way that we have yet to experience Him. They have not only heard of Him, they have seen Him. He goes on to say, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I want you to understand that this is a man. Uh, is somebody in Job? Can you turn to Job chapter 1 for me? Yeah, turn to Job for me, would you? Who, who's, who's over there? Dean, you there? Who else is there? Please, somebody else. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Stand up, would you? I want you to read something for me. I haven't found it yet. But in Job chapter 1, he talks about Job's character. He's excu- you know, he's, he excuse evil, so forth. Can you find that verse there? It's right in chapter 1. Will you, re- will you read that for, for everyone really loud? Did you just hear the description of Job before he went through affliction? <laughs> this is amazing, folks. Notice again. Thank you, Dean. Notice again. He says, 
a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And yet Job, in the end, says, I abhor myself. I can't even stand to look at myself when I consider the beauty of my Lord. He says, I repent in dust and ashes. These times of affliction in our life that Satan puts us through, that God permits, they reveal our inadequacy and insufficiency. They reveal to us our weaknesses, our helplessness, our lack of understanding. We realize how helpless we are when we are in the midst of these afflictions. These times help us to see things that we couldn't see before. God's grace, like never before. His comfort and His mercy. These times reveal God to us. Why? Because we draw closer to Him. These times remind us how sinful we really are. Because when we see God, when we draw close to Him... We don't just hear about Him, but now we begin to experience Him firsthand. We see ourselves in light of His glory and perfection. And we are ever reminded how utterly dreadful we are. Job saw himself in a new light now. He saw himself in the light of perfection. You know, we're big about trying to encourage people today in the Christian life, and I'm all for it. I believe in preaching positive things. This is a Wednesday night crowd. You need this desperately, and so do I. I like to be positive, and this is positive in the end. But let me tell you, when anytime you're going through an affliction, anytime you're going through a trial, anytime you're dealing with sorrow and bereavement, there's nothing, nothing that's swell about it. It's tough. But there are some tremendous dividends if we will give God the benefit of the doubt and allow Him to have control of our emotions and our life. See, these times remind us how undeserving we are. These times remind us how worthy God really is of our adoration and our praise. These times reinforce a renewed sense of humility and gratitude if we'll simply... As Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. See, if we'll be patient in the midst of these storms, we will find in the end that God only permits affliction for good, never for harm. What's he say over in the book of Romans chapter 8? He says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Never forget that during affliction, 
a person is vulnerable to attack. You are and so am I. I don't care that I stand behind this pulpit and I'm the pastor of Community Baptist Temple. When affliction hits my life, my family's life, or those that I love and care about, I am vulnerable. I am so vulnerable to to yielding the advantage to Satan. Well, I have the advantage because I have Christ living in me, but I can disregard Him in the midst of the affliction and in turn give the advantage to Satan. So I must be looking for it, walking circumspectly. In the military, we're trained to be very careful in certain places at certain times. You need to be very careful when you're walking through a ravine or through low-lying land. Because, see, the enemy always seeks to get the advantage of high ground. So as soon as you walk through a ravine or go through a canyon, you know you better be very, very careful because the enemy could certainly be at an advantage. You learn not to cross an open field. Because next thing you know, he can be lobbing mortars right in on you. You never return the same way you went out on a patrol. You always come back a different way. You don't want to be predictable to the enemy. You always keep at least five meter intervals, if possible, at all times. Why? You don't want to bunch up. Don't give the enemy an advantage in your Christian life. As soon as affliction begins to come, as soon as you recognize it, also be very prepared to receive an onslaught or an attack by Satan. Because he wants to gain the advantage on you. And he's good at it. Satan will use times of sorrow and bereavement, and he will use the tool of affliction to gain the advantage over us. May God help us as his children to be aware of the attacks to not give Satan an advantage. But to go forward in the power of Jesus Christ. And experience the victory that he intends. Father we love you. We thank you for this time we've had together tonight. We are grateful Father for the simplicity of your word. And Father for how practical it is in our lives. Lord help us. If we're not in the midst of one. We'll ultimately end up there in our lives. Affliction's going to find us. Trouble's going to find us. Father, help us, Lord, to be very aware of it. And Lord, it doesn't have to just be the loss of a loved one. It can just be a physical battle that we're fighting. It could be some kind of emotional struggle that we're going through with family or friends. It could be a number of things that afflict us.